The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. And this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of August 19th, 2019. On this week's show, we'll talk about Jay-Z's new partnership with the NFL, and what it means for the league and the still unemployed Colin Kaepernick. We'll also discuss Joseph Tsai's multi-billion dollar deal to buy the Brooklyn Nets, the highest price ever paid for an American sports franchise. Finally, we'll select the words that we would like to ban from the sports lexicon. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio is a high character guy, the author of the book's Word Freak and a few seconds of panic. It's Stefan Fatsis. High motor, too. I just want to point out. (laughs) That's implicit. Uh, also with us this week from our studio in Brooklyn, it's the guy who brings the intangibles. He is the theater <laughs> critic for The New Yorker and a charter member of the fan club for R.J. Barrett, a.k.a. the Maple Mamba. Mm. It is our friend Vincent <laughs> Cunningham. Hey, Vincent. Hey, I am all of those things. It's true. Uh, before we get on to business today, I wanted to let folks know that Hang Up alum Mike Pesca is doing a live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn. It's on Monday, September 16th. That show is the Gist Comedy Special. It will feature Hari Kondabolu, among many others. Tickets are 20 bucks, and you can get them at slate.com slash live. Go see Pesca. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The NFL didn't look so great when it became public a couple weeks ago that one of its franchise owners, billionaire Stephen Ross of the Miami Dolphins, was hosting a $250,000 per person fundraiser for Donald Trump in the Hamptons. Ross defended himself in a statement touting a sports nonprofit he runs and calling himself an outspoken champion of racial equality. Dolphins wide receiver Kenny Stills called bullshit on the dissonant messaging and, during a preseason game, knelt during the national anthem, as he has done in the past, to support banished quarterback Colin Kaepernick and racial justice. Ross held his event, which combined with another one, to raise $12 million for Trump. This is not where the NFL figured it would be at the start of the 2019 season, not after taking all the crisis management handbook steps to quell criticism that it was insensitive at best to the concerns of its predominantly African-American workforce. It had settled a grievance filed by Kaepernick that the league's 32 teams had colluded not to hire him. It had created a program to spend $100 million on social justice issues. And last week, in what the league must have figured would be the final piece of its rehabilitation, It announced it was partnering with the rapper and entertainment mogul Jay-Z as part of that program. That last thing quickly backfired. The Jay-Z deal was criticized for what it mostly seems to be a music promotion contract with Kaepernick ally Eric Reid of the Carolina Panthers tweeting, Jay-Z doesn't need the NFL's help to address social injustices. It was a money move for him and his music business. The NFL gets to hide behind his blackface to try to cover up blackballing Colin. Vincent, the NFL can't seem to get out of its way on this issue, but really, is there any reason to believe the NFL should be capable of getting out of its own way here. It's it's unclear to me what is in the NFL's way and how it thinks it's getting over what that is, right? I mean, if you believe last year's statistics, like, they're kind of fine. It's like there are all these uh, symbolic things that it seems totally inept. I mean, it, that's what's always going to be the case if everybody that's your biggest stakeholder is, like, an elderly white guy, right? Like, that's just how it's going to go. Like A lot of rich people who don't have necessarily the the reasons or the wherewithal to keep up with, like, the ever-moving political debate and people who are probably essentially conservative at heart. Um, but what they can't get are these these symbols. And, and, and I think the Kaepernick affair has been all about symbols, and it won't ever be resolved, right, until there's, like, a sort of commensurate symbol at its end. I think that's what the 
the frustration with this Jay-Z thing. It's just like, well, it didn't end because no one's – whether the symbolic thing is, you know, giving Kaepernick another contract or whatever that is, the the sort of symbology of it has not finished, even though the sort of business fundamentals for the NFL seem to be kind of untouched. There's this weird disconnect between whether the league is doing well on a sort of base level and whether it is – sort of broadcasting all the right signals to those who are sort of alive to hear them. I think your premise, Stefan, is a little bit more in question than maybe you made it seem. I'm speaking of like whether this backfired for the NFL was a bad news cycle for the NFL. But, you know, perhaps Goodell and the league were thinking that this was mostly a music and entertainment deal. This was a deal. Jay-Z is going to like produce some songs for the league to use in marketing. He's going to program the Super Bowl halftime show. Perhaps this will stave off the possibility of Three Doors Down being the halftime act at the next thing. Super Bowl, which that would <laughs> that would have been a bad thing for, for the NFL to make the Super Bowl sound like a Trump inauguration ball. But, um, you know, the social justice component, maybe that was just they thought it was a bonus. Like, let's also, as we're programming the Super Bowl, let's kind of toss this in and maybe get some good press for it. They, in fact, did not get good right. press well, for and it. Well, that, that's the problem. It's that the NFL <laughs> believes that it's doing things, again, that come out of some crisis management playbook that, in the end, are completely counterproductive. That they think that, oh, we're being great here. Hey, it's Jay-Z, big name, rapper, has been involved in social justice issues in the past, how can it go wrong if we partner with him? Well, it can go wrong because he can get up in the microphone and basically insult Colin Kaepernick, whom a lot of people and a lot of NFL customers still ally with and feel was done wrong. I mean, Jay-Z said, I think we've moved past kneeling. I think it's time to go into actionable items, which is kind of a shitty thing to say. We got stuck um, on Col- we get stuck on Colin not having a job. You know what I'm saying? And this is more than that. Dave Zirin said, Vincent, uh, picture Roger Goodell laughing his ass off that Jay-Z is catching all the flack instead of Stephen Ross or himself for Kaepernick's exile and the league's Trump support. Jay-Z was paid well to become a different kind of shield. What do you think of that take? I think it's essentially correct. I mean, I do think that there is a certain cluelessness where, like, I'm sure a lot of NFL owners are genuinely excited to be like, oh, Jay-Z is here in the same way that, like, Last year, for example, Robert Kraft, who apparently helped to craft this deal between uh, Jay-Z and, and, and Roger Goodell. Meek last Mill's year, Robert best Kraft friend, was, Robert Kraft. <laughs> exactly. He was super excited to, to be seen helping Meek Mill get out of jail last year, right? I mean, I think there is some sort of sincere, possibly clueless interest there on behalf of these guys and sort of commensurately rich, black sort of cultural icons. But in another sense, I think there is that shield aspect. And my sort of corollary for this is actually like sort of climate change in a weird way. I think the NFL knows in the same way that many cities know that like there's little that they can do to really turn back the ravaging effects of whether it's the climate or their their reputation. But they have sort of switched into a mitigation mindset. I think that this like it's not going to be a great uh, news cycle. No one's ever going to say like the NFL is fixed. Um, but they might spend some time talking about some aspect or another of the the sort of little moves they do to look a little bit better. And I think if they're doing this kind of blocking and tackling, uh, no pun intended, um, I think that's kind of fine for them. I think they've mitigated a look into some of the deeper and darker issues. Except that you know, there is a way to do this right. I mean, the NBA has demonstrated that it is possible to have – white guys running your league at the very top positions, and yet to genuinely and sincerely show that you care about these issues and that you are connected to the players. And, I mean, maybe we've done too much unfair criticism of the deal that the NFL did cut with this Players Coalition last year. That was the group that Malcolm Jenkins of the Eagles has ended up spearheading. Players like Eric Reed backed out of it because they felt that it was run by the NFL, um, that it wasn't sincere. But there have been some defenses of the work that, that's going on with that that seem pretty legit. Benjamin Watson of the Patriots tweeted a defense of his work and the work of other players in this in this group. Yeah, I mean, there's a genuine, I think, difference of opinion. And there has been 
for the last year plus, if not more, between the Kaepernick-Reed faction and the Jenkins-Watson faction. And I think you can now say that Jay-Z is a part of the Malcolm Jenkins Players Coalition group about what the approach should be, about whether any approach is good or fair or justified if it does not involve Kaepernick you know, being a part of that group and it does not involve a deal to get Kaepernick back on the field. And I can understand the perspective of somebody like Watson. And I think, you know, Vincent, back to the question of whether Jay-Z is being used as a shield, I think the reason that he's being talked about here more than anyone else isn't necessarily because he's more to blame. It's because his role here is genuinely the most confusing. Like, you know what the NFL is getting out of this. You know where Eric Reed and Colin Kaepernick are coming from. But Jay-Z is somebody who has spoken out very strongly and loudly in defense of Colin Kaepernick. He wore a Kaepernick jersey on Saturday Night Live. He has been one of the loudest and most prominent voices around the Trayvon Martin case, around Khalif Browder. Um, and Didn't he do some lyrics? Tell the NFL we're in stadiums, too, in one of his songs? Yeah. Yeah, and so I think it it is interesting uh, and, again, confusing to think about what is Jay-Z's thought process here. And he didn't really do an amazing job in that press conference of explaining it. Yeah, it's 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 confusing and it's not right. It's confusing if you think of Jay-Z as a person Um, and (laughs) not to get all like Bernie, but like it's not confusing if if you think of him as a billionaire, like nobody makes as much money as he has without doing things that are sort of uh, perhaps contradictory or hypocritical. Um, we're going to talk about the Nets later, but he he definitely played a similar, uh, similarly sort of laundry role in making the Nets seem a little bit less nefarious when Barclays um, used eminent domain to clear out a whole section of Brooklyn to create a stadium. Right. This has been one of his cultural roles to sort of provide cover for sort of dubious outfits. I think that's fair to say. Well, let um, me hop in and, and ask you about what Jamel Hill wrote, which is Jay-Z didn't always have the luxury of avoiding relationships and partnerships with people he disagreed with or disliked. But then Jamel says, in this case, Jay-Z isn't getting enough out of the deal to justify the sacrifice of some of his credibility. Does she know how much he's getting? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that, that we, that's something we can say on this podcast or from, you know, um, as much as I like Jamel Hill, I just don't know that that's necessarily... Um, the case and by what sort of rubric, moral, financial, whatever you would even say how, you know, whether how much is um, enough. And then, yeah, I I think that Jay-Z and Roger Goodell lost the press conference. And again, I get back to saying that I, I think we're being a little premature to say that this backfired on the league. Like, let's, you know, we're gonna have to wait months or years to see what Jay-Z does do with this or get out of this um, to, to really come to a final conclusion. But the one way of reading it is that the NFL as a PR mission thought that this would look good and mm-hmm. explicitly chose to link a perfectly rational business alliance with Jay-Z, the entertainment mogul, with this other problem that they have. And the unspoken part of the whole problem is that it all emanates from Colin Kaepernick. All of this is Colin Kaepernick's doing. (laughs) And the NFL is never going to acknowledge that we are taking these steps because we fundamentally agree with the positions that Colin Kaepernick was arguing when he took a knee and stood his ground and refused to co-opt his principles to get back into the league and put his money where his mouth is and has become first and foremost, a, a a social justice entrepreneur. But yeah, and I think to the point about symbols, they're never going to look good, right, in the way of, you know, you think about the what the NBA has done, partially by not putting itself into situations like this to begin with, but it's like they're never going to do that unless they take that sort of path of contrition and say what you just said and say, not only do we agree with the things that he was standing for, but we were wrong to 
prohibit a certain kind of protest and, you know, all of the things that we've talked about, because it's been about those two things, right? That's part of the confusion that it's been about the substance of the issue, but then also about the sort of legitimacy of a, a private corporation quelling certain kinds of protests, right? They're never going to look good in the way that we want them to look good unless they say these things that they're just not going to say. Yeah, and they have they're to They're not going to do that. Yeah, they're not going to do it. And when they try to do it, they bring in someone like Jay-Z, who kind of said it, but he said it so, so ineffectively and critically that it sounded like he was criticizing Kaepernick as opposed to supporting him. So, yeah, and back to a couple of points ago, uh, Jeremy Stahl, our colleague, wrote, the league would never have been put in a position to fund any kinds of social justice causes if it wasn't trying to control the movement that Colin Kaepernick started. And so I think you could reasonably argue that the whole reason that Jay-Z has the opportunity to stand at a press conference and say we need to stop kneeling is because Colin Kaepernick knelt in the same place. So it just... um, that that grates. Yeah. Um, Michael Harriet wrote on the route that any social justice partnership with the NFL that doesn't include Colin Kaepernick not only lets the owners off the hook and validates their shadow ban, but it essentially profits from the movement that he started and hands the proceeds to the NFL. Two things. So um, I think we're being a little bit, I don't know if naive is the right word, but even if the NFL hadn't said anything about social justice in relation to partnering with Jay-Z. He still would have come in for criticism and the league would have too. I mean, with the Super Bowl halftime show last year that ended up with Maroon 5 leading the bill, there was just like a succession of reports of black entertainers, performers who were reported to be linked to it, who said that they didn't want to be involved. And so it's become this kind of litmus test of like, will you do business with the NFL. And that comes up whether the NFL makes it a social justice partnership explicitly or not. And then the second thing is that when we're t- trying to answer Jamel Hill's question of whether Jay-Z got enough out of this, there was a report in TMZ that um, Jay-Z is going to become part owner of an NFL team. So we, we don't know if that is, you know, 90 percent. 80, 86%, 100% or less, but that's a report that was out there. It it does make me think, you know, that the in some ways the, the NFL has been shrewder than we give them credit for in their choice of Jay-Z for this. I mean, in some ways, obviously, he's the obvious choice. But it does, this kind of move does also align very closely with the kind of aesthetics and philosophy that Jay-Z has been putting forward for like, I guess you could say the last five years. Um, His last album, 444, was all about like, part of it was about sort of atoning for cheating on his wife. But then the other part of it, the other main strain of it was like, you young guys got to get hip to what I'm doing. Like you got to buy property and you got to get a, you know, you can't uh, make change unless you get a seat at the table with in, in, in tables like uh, presumably this one with Roger Goodell and, and the NFL ownership, right? Um, he has put forward a sort of an ethos of like this, like this seat at the table thing has been sort of consistent with him. And so in some ways, it's not surprising to hear this. That And, and I can imagine him uh, ardently believing the things that he said at that press conference, which is, which is we've passed beyond the symbolic part of this and now it's like now somebody's got to be at the table to make uh, to make these changes um he even said like so that the next time there's a someone like colin kaepernick and somebody has these issues like this they can bring them to to ownership or they can bring them to the league and it doesn't have to play out on the field chilling to me but again consistent with this sort of like booker t washingtonism that he has been sort of putting forward for a while now Maybe we're missing the long game here, which is that when Jay-Z becomes an owner, he's going to bring in Kaepernick and then he will cackle <laughs> and uh, say that that was his plan all along. Yeah. yeah. I'm not holding my breath for that. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. 
visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. A decade ago, Mikhail Prokhorov acquired 80% of the then New Jersey Nets basketball team for $223 million and the assumption of a bunch of debt. He sold 49% of the team to Joseph Tsai, the co-founder of Alibaba, the Chinese Amazon, a few years ago for around a billion dollars and last week sold the remaining 51% to Tsai for $1.35 billion. The valuation of $2.35 billion makes it a record purchase price for a sports franchise. That's right, the Brooklyn Nets, founded in 1967 as part of the American Basketball Association, all-time winning percentage, 432, sold for more money (laughs) than any American sports team ever. This surprises me, Josh, but it also reflects the way that the limited commodity of sports franchises have exploded in value. Yeah, I mean, part of that is that a team that would have sold for more than the Brooklyn Nets has not gone on the market. The ones that get sold tend not to be the ones that are the blue chip, historic Mount Rushmore franchises, whatever cliche you want to use. So like the Clippers get sold, but not the Lakers. Uh, Wait, does that imply that the Knicks are a blue chip franchise? I've trapped myself in a corner here, Vincent. I don't know how how to get out of it. Would the Knicks (laughs) sell for you wouldn't go there? Would the Knicks sell for more than two point three five billion? I say maybe yes, they would sell for five billion, four billion. I guess so. I mean, they have R.J. Barrett. Um, I mean, <laughs> no, I think you're Frank, right. I think that Natalikina, the precious resource that he is. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, it only takes one rich dude to want to buy a team, and when a rich dude buys a team, he and it's always he sees the name and sees uh, the only the best possible outcome. And honestly, why wouldn't he? Because it seems like these franchises never go down in value. Hopefully we'll get to it later in the conversation. Maybe we can talk about how and when that could happen. Yeah. I mean, part of the the story here, especially if you think about the Nets, and we've already talked about a little bit about sort of the process that made Barclays and therefore the, the Nets in their current iteration sort of able to exist. Part of the undergirding of all of this is the public financing of arenas. Um, ben Mathis Lilly for, for for Slate wrote a really great piece about how um, all of this sort of rests on the public and therefore the public should be able to expect some sort of return on that, which of course never happens, right? But that's part of what makes this these, these resources just go up and up and up in value without any kind of fear of a drop on the on the on behalf of the owners. I mean, the the pathway the the pathway for franchise values to go down would be for an entire league to fail, I think. And maybe there's a pathway for that to happen with the NFL, given brain injuries. But um, as far as the NBA goes, I mean, I guess another pathway is if cities and states and governments on mass decide that they're no longer going to provide these subsidies, um, but there's been no indication thus far that that that's afoot. There have been periods of flattening. There have been franchises that sold for less than what their um, buyers paid for them. Um, Usually quick turnarounds, not the ones that have been held for obviously a decade or longer. So there really isn't much evidence that, you know, that this is a market that's in decline. These remain you know, there are only 32 of them in the NBA and the NFL and 30 in baseball. I mean, they're, they're just not a lot of them. These are scarce commodities, and there are more billionaires than ever uh, that are apparently willing to, to buy them. Well, once we pass a extremely aggressive wealth tax in this country, they're just not going to be any people who can afford right. these prices. Yeah. Um, uh, the next, by the way? Get in while the getting's good. Forbes uh, Forbes annual valuation list list of uh, sports franchises. The Knicks are at four billion dollars, tied with the Yankees as the second most valuable U.S. sports franchises after the Dallas Cowboys. James Dolan's claimed that he has been offered five billion dollars for the Knicks. Could be true. Take the money. <laughs> as a yeah, longtime Knicks it, fan, please. take the damn money, please. dude. Yeah, get it while the getting's good. 
But I mean, I do think that Dolan's sort of refusal to get off the Knicks partially has to do with the economics that we've talked about, but partially reflects a generational difference, right? I mean, I, f- I feel like it's the Knicks and the Lakers and maybe some other NBA teams that are kind of family legacies, right? And 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 Jerry Buss of the Lakers famously, I mean, it was a real, I mean, it was his, it was run as a family business. It was, he was running it to make money off of it in a way that the newer class of mostly tech owners in the in, in the NBA are not, right? These people aren't running them to make money off of them. It's a purely uh, vanity play. And it's interesting. I think this kind of intersects with what we've already said about the NFL owners and their sort of relative cluelessness. They're a whole generation of people who have run these things essentially as members of a country club, right? It's like the NFL ownership is like a smaller Augusta, right? And it's there's a sort of old boysness that's going out of it. And it's becoming more and more financialized and, and, and sort of tech people being the, the main movers. Um, and this is part of why I think transactions like this one are part of why the the NBA starts to seem a little bit more progressive. Because it's like, you know, the same ethos that gives you Google and other tech companies that have, you know, great diversity policies or know how to speak that language. These new raft of owners and this new raft of sort of buying their way into the league does affect culture in a way that maybe hasn't happened uh, as quickly in the NFL as in other leagues. And this is a good thing for the NBA. I mean, Prokhorov was a terrible owner. Um, He bailed out Brooklyn and he bailed out the developers of this Atlantic Yards complex uh, in 2009, right after the recession, um, by giving them a lot of money to take over part of that property and, and to assume the team. Um, he hasn't done shit. He was an absentee owner for most of the time. <laughs> he delegated their trades. You know, his mission was we're going to win the NBA in five years, big name splashes, willing to spend money. They were luxury taxed all the time. Um, none of it worked. And turning it over to someone that seems to be, by his other investments in sports, someone who cares about the business and, as you mentioned, is sort of brings a sort of more tech philosophy to operating a pro sports team is only a good thing for the NBA. Yeah, I mean, it's a good thing for the NBA in terms of helping open the market to China. Uh, that's sure. For sure. I mean, who's to say what going into business with uh, China will mean kind of long term for, for the league. But um, and there were risks when Prokhorov bought the Nets. Everyone was concerned about whether it would be a good thing to bring the NBA into Russia or or a bad thing. And it turned out to be neutral because he didn't seem to really care very much. So, I mean, one thing that the NBA and, and I guess now the Premier League have going for them in terms of franchise valuations is that there is this international appeal to these franchises. You have Americans buying in to the Premier League. You have massive international interest in the NBA, um, you know, that hasn't so much been the case with the NFL, but that doesn't seem to be hurting <laughs> the franchise values for the NFL. According to this Forbes list, all of the franchises in the NFL are worth $2 billion or more. Stefan, I'm going to put you on the spot. So 2012, according to this Forbes list, and you know these are just estimates, but they uh, said in 2012 that there's only one pro sports team in the world, Manchester United, that was worth more than $2 billion. Uh, in 2019, they have 50 on their list. Um, is this just because of the reality of these sales is resetting the market? And so they're increasing the values for that reason. Is it because of massive uh, television contracts that have increased value? Or, or what else could explain that kind of massive jump in this short period of time? I think in the NBA, it's certainly a better labor deal for the league. Um, they're only sharing 50% of certain defined revenues with the players versus 57% in the past, and that labor deal has proven to be an absolute boon for management. More broadly, I think it's the, the continued expansion of rights fees and commercial opportunities in markets. The Premier League has been the best league in the world in capitalizing on um, the market for soccer in places like China and other parts of the world that had not been targeted by these big leagues before. And it is the rise in the number of billionaires um, globally that have the wherewithal to buy these teams 
which drives up the price of the price. I mean, look, if there's more, this is simple economics. If there, there's more interest in buying these teams, the prices are going to continue to go up. Absent some sort of global economic depression or more narrow sports depression, I don't think we're going to see much decline um, in the near term. Flattening, certainly, but as long as there, there are billionaires to buy these um, you know, that, that we're going to see interest, continued interest. And the fact that it's happened in a short period of time is reflective of the fact that we've had a great economy. I was wrong. It's not every NFL team that's worth more than $2 billion. It's almost every NFL team. Who's not? Yeah. So I, I actually found a Forbes list from 2018 that says 28 are worth $2 billion or more. Uh, the ones that are not, Cleveland Browns at a mm. piddling $1.95 billion. <laughs> Cincinnati Bengals, 1.8. Detroit Lions, this is some anti-Midwest bias, 1.7 billion. And then in last place, the team that Donald Trump could not afford, the Buffalo Bills, 1.6 billion dollars. Wow. We thought about the Green Bay Packers, but they are on here. It's 2.625 billion dollars, despite being publicly owned. Has not suppressed I mean, one the of value. the more famous ones, right? So yeah, I guess one of the more sense. famous. Uh, I mean, the biggest threat to all of this is that that there's some major disruption in the way that sports leagues are distributed to the public. And that means a decline in in in, in rights fees from the broadcasting industry. Um, if fantasy uh, sports become more popular than real sports or esports become more popular. Well, if, if if television networks aren't willing to spend the money because they are getting you know, outflanked by digital properties and some digital properties, you know, don't see the value in the in the leagues, then there could be some shakeup. But again, the there's Madden, no evidence the that Madden that's going to happen Buffalo now. Bills are worth $1.6 billion. I mean, it's just so rare to be a rich person to be able to make an investment that if recent history is a guide is not going to decline in value, it's going to go up in value. And also makes you seem cool and gives you like all of the <laughs> perks of wealth and what's the point of being rich if you can't own a, a sports franchise i mean i can understand why there would be intense competition and interest um to buy the sacramento factors. kings yeah why not okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, Stefan. We have been using the internet website, twitter.com. <laughs> to do some of our programming in recent weeks. And there was a thread that got us thinking. It was started by a guy named Troy Macker. And the thread was, you get to ban one word from the entire lexicon of sports. What word are you banning? He then came up with a top 10 list of words to ban. How do you want to start? Do you want to come up? You want to list your word? Do you want to go through the top 10 first? I think we should save our words for later to build some suspense. Okay. During the segment. <laughs> All right. Let's go through this top 10 list. Because uh, I think my word, by the way, is hands down the word. And it's right. not on his list. So. All right. Mm. Um, all right. The number one word on here, Vincent, is class. Curious for your response to class slash classy slash classiness. <laughs> uh, does that deserve the number one spot in words that should be banned from the sports lexicon? I do not think that it should be number one necessarily. Or I, I certainly don't think it's like a hands down number one. But I do think it belongs on the list. I do think that it's one of those words that's not only a cliche, um, but it also sort of contain. It's one of those weasel words that contains a lot about how we talk about athletes, uh, how we connect certain performances of virtue to sort of what happens on the court, which most times is totally bogus like it's when we think about what's wrong with sports analysis classy is one is one of those things that like kind of encapsulates large swaths of the thing that's wrong so uh i'm fine with classy it doesn't knock my socks off but it's 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 okay 
it's almost always used in a hypocritical or disingenuous way is, I think, a good reason for its position here. No one who says that an opponent isn't classy or didn't act with class would ever say the same thing about their favorite team engaging in the same <laughs> actions. Uh, <laughs> Stefan, number two is talk about, which is used here uh, in a little bit of a, a cheat because he spelled talk about without a space. Well, I would say <laughs> I, I would I would stipulate that you have to understand that a word, the word word doesn't necessarily mean a single word in lexicography. This is called in linguistics. <laughs> this is known as a lexical unit. So mm. you can have You're getting more into than some definition word. of the word is is stuff here. Yeah. The definition of the word a word is not a word. Multi-word phrases are words in a linguistic sense. All right. Well, talk about talk about then, Stefan. Um, this is a late comer. I mean, really, I don't know that it's been around long enough for it to catapult to number two on any list. I mean, talk about is this shorthand um, that's that that some journalists use in press conferences, particularly to ask questions of athletes rather than asking an actual question. They just say, talk about this or talk about that. And it's a cliche. The lead of Brian Curtis's Grantland piece was talk about the most insipid thing you hear in locker rooms. Yes. Um, great piece by Brian, that was. It was. Yeah. I don't know that it merits, um, the, the, you know, I, I'm more concerned about about words that are used in ways that reflect some sort of naivete or bias or hidden um, intention. Sort of weasel words are the ones that m make me angrier than something like this journalistic shorthand. Well, it's kind of the opposite in a way, Vincent, of what you were saying about mm -hmm. class and how it's a signify it it says more than is actually contained in the word, whereas talk about contains nothing. It's an entirely <laughs> content free. And it's a yeah. stand in like the reason to object to this is because it stands in for the total lack of information that's conveyed in many sideline interviews and post game interviews. One thing that I had a question about here actually. Um to use Stefan's phrase, there are two sort of distinct lexical units that talk about refers to, mm -hmm. right? There's the the non-question that we're talking about, but then there's the one that I actually really like because it talks, it, it sort of speaks to regional ways that people speak. So that's the interrogative talk about, right? The, the talk about such and such. And I hate that one as we've talked about. There is <laughs> a good one though, which is like the 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 sort of declarative Talk about a great dunk. I don't know. You know that? Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah that yeah. one's kind of the, the sort of Hubie Brownish one. And I like that one because it sort of it's it, it, it crams a lot of meaning into mm -hmm. it. It's like, here's an example of something that was just displayed on the court. That's a totally different talk about. Yeah. So point. I don't know. There's I think that yeah, that talk about, bad talk about. <laughs> and I think you need to make that clarification. That drops this thing off the list entirely. I, I don't think it belongs, honestly. Some of the other words that uh, that Troy, who, by the way, is a, an editor at the NBC Sports in Washington here, that put on his top 10 list, narrative, goat, momentum, swagger, character. You love to say narrative. Elite. Own it, baby. <laughs> I love saying narrative. I'm not putting that anywhere on my list. Culture, intangibles. Those are all fine, and they're mildly annoying. Um, character is bad. Character is bad. Yeah. Character and culture are sort of lumped into the class thing, right? They're all talking about the same thing. Now I can't stop saying talking about it. <laughs> yeah. They're just nonspecific <laughs> and they sort of hide what you really mean. They Talk about a way. linguistic crutch. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, intangibles is kind of like an old school bad sports word in that I kind of love how it's just a thing that's I associate with childhood and just the pregame thing on the screen of like, or or like it'll get the, <laughs> you'll get the check mark if you have the intangibles yeah. and it's just never defined for whatever reason that doesn't bother me. I just find it kind of like a charming yeah, sports charming. thing that makes no sense. I like goat. I don't mind it's creeping growth in the sports uh, lexicon also because I defined goat for Merriam-Webster as part of my work on my upcoming book. So Ooh. I got goat into, into Merriam. Simone Biles with the bedazzled goat on the back of her. Right. Leotard. How can you how, not like that? How can you not like that? Yeah. 
All right. Um, Vincent, do you want to go off the board? Yeah. Mine, I, I don't know if it, it's certainly not a number one, but the one that has annoyed me for a, a really sort of three years straight, maybe five, I don't know, is I want to get rid of analytics. They're just statistics. And the word analytics has, is another one of these weasel words that has come to mean whatever people. It can refer to a style of play, especially in basketball. Not just in basketball. Now, analytics has become like the stand-in for like, you know, only strikeouts and home runs in baseball. It's become the stand-in for only three-pointers in, in, in basketball, right? It just – even in, in, in soccer this year, there's been this all f- more and more and more forward uh, form of play that isn't sort of – doesn't necessarily correspond with the beautiful game. It stand it stood in for all of these things that like uh sort of crustier observers dislike about the game. It's in some ways become a stand in for whiteness whenever conversations about diversity and coaching come up. There's this, you know, Jalen Rose in the New Yorker, uh when he's talking to my uh, colleague Isaac Chotner, talked about how analytics has become this weird hurdle for black coaches. It's become a stand-in for just people not liking nerds. It just is something that could go away. When we talk, when we are referring to numbers, we could, they are, they're just statistics. And there's a lot of other things that we could use instead of... I don't know, but then how do we differentiate between what anyone who's been, you know, who's older than 25 sort of conceives of as mathematical understanding of sports? Because it is different from the way that we considered the role of numbers in sports. They were digestible and they were simple and they helped sort of um, define athletes. And analytics is something much broader. It's a sort of a, a systematic evaluation of, of sports. So what, what could we use to stand in for it? Yeah. Or maybe I, I guess maybe and, and maybe this means that this is not a good choice, but maybe we could just confine it to the meaning that you just said. Because if it's just about a different way of using numbers, then fine. But I don't like its creep into so many other areas of sports analysis um, that sort of span from numbers to to styles of play to uh, structural and political arrangements. Uh, I don't like that creep. I can sign on to that, Stefan. Yeah. All right. I'll go next. I'm going to cheat and go with two. The first I don't really have a nice explanation for, like you did, Vincent. It just annoys me. Uh, Mindset. Don't like Mm. mindset. That's all I'm going to say. All right. The one that I have a longer (laughs) thought about, and this actually I found in the replies to this Twitter thread, so it wasn't my original thought, but I endorse it fully. This comes from a, a Twitter user with the handle Pittsburgh Sport, and the word is bum. (laughs) Hmm. bum is a uh very long-standing sports word it goes back to dem bums and the brooklyn dodgers it's kind of a term of endearment but the way that it's used now i would say is exemplified by the conversation that uh stephen a smith who vincent you profiled had with carmelo Mm -hmm. anthony and talking about why carmelo is not in the league and they were going back and forth about it. And then kind of in like an after the show sort of interview, Stephen A said, there are a lot of bums in the NBA. There's so many bums in the NBA, in fact, that it's an injustice that Carmelo is not in the league, given the size of rosters and given his skill. And, you know, maybe it's true that Carmelo Anthony deserves a roster spot. But the way that that term is thrown out by not only like people on Twitter, but by officially sanctioned media members, people who know the game, have followed the game, know and respect the game, that they just like throw it out to insult guys who are some of the best athletes in the world and who are very good at basketball and are not in fact bums. Um, It's dehumanizing. And I think there's just like a general strain, Vincent, of commentary where people will just insult players really freely and talk about somebody as being, you know, quote unquote bad when they're not in fact bad. Maybe they're below average for the NBA, but um, it's thrown around too loosely. I don't like bum. I think that Stephen A is like, it's funny that you mentioned him because he's the the chief uh, (laughs) offender here. Like he 
loves to I mean he used to just do this thing by just saying a guy's name funny like um he used to say Tiago Splitter like he would just like break somebody's name up into these derisive syllables um but yeah I mean I think and I realize still- there's some performance element here I realize that you know we're not supposed to take it totally seriously that it's it's he would say maybe that it's just in the context of the NBA, this guy is right, not right, as good. Right. But I'll stipulate all that. Continue. <laughs> no, I think you're. I think you're, I, I like it because it's it's true, and I think it re- represents an, another level of fandom to always be mindful that anybody who's literally even keeping up with the back and forth, like on the right side of the court, most of the time is an incredible athlete, and I think it's it's fair to keep that in mind as. Not only fair, but maybe a duty to keep that in mind as a fan. I'm going to point out that the first citation in the Oxford English Dictionary for this uh, sense of bum, a worthless or contemptible person, a lazy or irresponsible person, is from the Chicago Tribune in 1882. And it's a, it's a baseball. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Chicago yeah. Tribune. Instead of being as he should be far above the level of the ball player, the umpire of today is far below that level and properly belongs in the bum category. <laughs> yeah. And I think I'm, I'm glad that you read the definition because I think the way that it's used and I think the intended use, I don't know if the um, if it's meant to be as negative as I think it really is, like worthless and contemptible. I mean, that's a it's pretty, it's a pretty strong. strong and vicious <laughs> pretty bad. insult. All right, Stefan, hit us. What do you got? The ones that, the, that, that, that predominate in the list and in the comments on this Twitter thread are of the sort of bum variety and of the talk about variety, sort of things that annoy us. And I went with the more sort of thing that is really contemptible. And worthless. that word and worthless. And that is the, the, the term student athlete. I think this should be banned. And this is for much more practical reasons. Good answer. Good Thank answer. Yeah, the student athlete was, was invented by the NCAA back in the, I think, 1950s. It was a way they came up with the, 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 the term so that they could avoid paying disability payment, payments to players who were injured. So you categorize them as students and athletes as opposed to just athletes. They found a legal way to get around um, the term. And it obviously caught on as a way to describe athletes. Um, And it is the most disingenuous and deleterious word in the sports lexicon, I think. Great answer. I like it. It's it's done serious harm and damage in a way that perhaps even Bum has not. And just going to give credit where it's due. Jason Murray, another user, rhymes with orange. Student athlete was selected. Oh, I didn't see that. I did not see it in in any of the. uh, In some of the replies. Okay. So. You're going to have to trust me that I came up with it on my own. (laughs) We trust you. I believe. All right. Let's move on to after balls. And I wanted to select a word slash lexical unit here. Uh, Randy Johnson, the lexical unit um, that <laughs> was I found in the replies and I felt was there uh, erroneously and that I wanted to elevate it because it is, in fact, a, a phrase that should be championed and not decried. And that is calling a running back a bell cow. How could you, Kevin Myers, not to not to call you up personally, but how could you uh, be upset? at uh, people calling running back a bell cow. Uh, it, the, the phrase is referring to the lead cow of a herd having a bell attached to a collar around its neck so that the herd could be located easily. It's a very evocative phrase, often used in reference to fantasy football. Perhaps you could argue that it's dehumanizing, but I, have, I prefer to think of it as figurative. Any, any votes, yay or nay, on bell cow? I don't have a problem with bell cow. I haven't even heard it that much, but no, I, I mean, the, you've, you've sold me. Yeah, Merriam's Unabridged Dictionary defines bell cow as a cow with a bell attached to it, its neck, especially a lead cow. But then the slang, the figurative use, is a leader. The bell cow is the, the first person. Was the first reference to Jim Brown? It should be. 
but I think it probably predates Jim Brown. All right. Let's do our, our bell cows. Stefan, what's your bell cow? <laughs> The Washington Post last week published the first installment of a series on climate change called Two Degrees Celsius Beyond the Limit. An increase of two degrees Celsius in the average worldwide temperature since 1895 is considered a threshold for catastrophic climate changes like retreating ice sheets, rising sea levels, dying coral reefs. The Post's first piece detailed how hundreds of counties in the United States already have exceeded the two-degree mark, which means that across America, football is being played in stifling heat and humidity. How's that for a transition? I've read stories this week about high schools proudly describing the ice tubs they keep on hand to treat possible heat stroke and other stories about schools heroically monitoring the heat index, which measures temperature and humidity, and the wet bulb globe temperature, which adds in wind speed and solar radiation. In Texas, it can take a Fahrenheit temperature of 100 degrees to force coaches to move football practice to early morning or evening or indoors. Tennessee state policy bans practice when the heat index goes above 104 degrees. Oklahoma's heat policy restricts the amount of preseason football practice to five hours every 24 hours, which still seems like a lot of football practice in the heat. Last Friday, (laughs) the coach of Putnam City High School in Oklahoma City tweeted, in response to the heat advisory, we will practice from 1.30 to 3 tomorrow. Just one practice, no double day, no meetings. 1.30 to 3 o'clock also does not seem like the optimal time to practice during a heat advisory. But football must go on. In Huntsville, Alabama, WAAY, Channel 31, visited practice at James Clemens High School last week. The football players still took the field in full pads, even with the heat index at about 107 degrees. But coaches and trainers were all around to make sure they were keeping their players safe the station reported. This is a full padded practice on the hottest day of the year, so it's a needed day, but it's definitely one we got to make sure we're taking care of our players, the head coach Wade Waldrop said. While Coach Waldrop and his staff made sure players got extra water breaks and generously allowed them to take off their helmets between drills, one thing they apparently didn't do was check the Alabama High School Athletic Association's safety guidelines. When the heat index exceeds 103, players are supposed to wear only helmets, not full pads and practice for a maximum of one hour. In North Florida, Spruce Creek High and Flagler Palm Coast High scrimmaged earlier this month when the heat index was 105. One player staggered off the field and with an internal body temperature of almost 103 was dumped in one of those ice tubs, which probably saved his life. That boy was lucky. After a football player died of heat stroke in 2017, the Florida Athletic Association strongly recommended but did not mandate that schools have cooling tubs with water and ice on hand. A 14-year-old boy did die during conditioning drills in high heat in Florida in June. Every high school football coach should be terrified that one of his players is going to drop dead from heat stroke. So I was relieved to read a story in the Gainesville Times in Georgia that quoted a couple of coaches, East Hall coach Michael Perry and West Hall coach Crofton Montgomery, who said it's too fucking hot to play football in the summer. They didn't say too fucking hot in the story, but they did say that practice shouldn't start until August 1st and games shouldn't start until after Labor Day. What I'm about to suggest would be heretical to football coaches, but I'd say start practice in September and games in October. Of course, by the middle of the century, football states like Florida and Texas are projected to have up to five months of days with a heat index above 100. If children's football insists on remaining a summer and fall sport, if it insists on remaining at all. Maybe it won't be subconcussive blows that kills it. Maybe it'll be the weather. Josh, what's your bell cow? The world's best men's tennis player, at least at this moment, is Daniil Medvedev. Going into last week, the 23-year-old Russian had made two consecutive tournament finals here in Washington, D.C., and then in Montreal. Then this past week in Cincinnati, he used huge first and second serves and really solid forehands and backhands to beat world number one Novak Djokovic in the semifinals and David Goffin in the final to win the biggest title of his career and move up to a career high number five in the world behind only Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer, and Dominic Team. Stefan's hero, the eighth ranked 
Stefanos Tsitsipas. Thank you. Is 0-4 in his career against Medvedev. Tsitsipas told Ben Rothenberg last week that Medvedev plays sloppy, adding, it's good sloppy. He can make you miss without your understanding how you just missed. You miss shots that you don't miss. That's deep, kind of. I watched Medvedev in D.C., so I have a good sense of how well the dude is playing. What I didn't know before I saw a pretty oblique tweet on Sunday is that three years ago, Medvedev was defaulted from a match on the second-tier Challenger Tour. In that match, which was played on clay in Savannah, Georgia, Medvedev, who was then ranked number 260 in the world, was playing Donald Young. Young is a black American player. In the first set, the chair umpire, a black woman named Sandy French, went down to the court to check the ball mark on a shot Medvedev hit that was close to the sideline. She called the ball out, giving Young the point, which led Medvedev to remark, I know that you are friends. I am sure about it. After the game was over, French called over a tournament supervisor. Medvedev was quickly defaulted for what the United States Tennis Association later referred to as questioning the impartiality of the umpire based on her race. There is, unfortunately, precedent for that incident. In 2001, Australian Leighton Hewitt claimed that a black line judge at the U.S. Open was calling foot faults on him to favor Hewitt's black opponent, American James Blake. I've only been foot faulted up one end. Look at him. Look at him. Look at him, mate, Hewitt said. Look at him and you will tell me what the similarity is. Get him off the court. Look at what he's done. Hewitt was not penalized during that match or afterwards. The U.S. Open tournament director, Brian Early, who you may remember as the guy who came on the court during last year's U.S. Open final when Serena Williams demanded to speak to the tournament director during her conflict with chair umpire Carlos Ramos, Early ruled that there was no violation of the, quote, Grand Slam code of conduct and that, quote, the evidence was inconclusive as to the intent of Mr. Hewitt's remarks to the chair umpire. Hewitt, for his part, said, I come from a multicultural country. I'm not racial in any way at all. Though Hewitt didn't get sanctioned, John McEnroe called his on-court statement unforgivable. It has indeed followed Hewitt for his whole career. You'll still hear people mention it when Hewitt's name comes up. Medvedev's words have gotten less attention because they came in a minor league event, probably also because he wasn't yet well known when it happened. As far as I know, Medvedev has never commented on this, uh, though the incident did get brought up in 2017 when at Wimbledon, Medvedev opened his wallet and started throwing coins at the base of the umpire's chair to make a not so subtle point about the umpire's bias, alleged bias towards his opponent. In that case, he apologized for, quote, doing a bad thing. In conclusion, U.S. Open starts next week. Daniil Medvedev, guy's going to start getting more attention. We'll see what happens, I guess. (laughs) That is our show for today. Our producer this week is Ethan Brooks, filling in for Melissa Kaplan. Special thanks to Daniel Hewitt for production help this week. And Vincent Cunningham, thank you for uh, being our guest as well. Thanks for having me. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, guessing you might want even more of the Hang Up and Listen sports podcast experience. In our bonus segment this week, we are going to talk about Deadspin and the fate of Deadspin. But there does seem to be something additive here because Deadspin is pushing back against the ownership and the things that they have attempted to do by reporting on them and now by the editor of the site quitting. What seems apparent is that they can't separate their personal feelings toward the staff and the site and what the site you know, stands for. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangoutplus. For Stefan Fatsis and Vincent Cunningham, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.